Chapter 54, Part 1 of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Mead. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 54, Part 2. Chapter 54, Origin and Doctrine of the Paulicians, Part 2. About the middle of the 8th century, Constantine, surnamed Capronimus by the worshippers of images, had made an expedition into Armenia, and found in the cities of Melitene and Theodosiopolis a great number of Paulicians, his kindred heretics. As a favor or punishment, he transplanted them from the banks of the Euphrates to Constantinople and Thrace, and by this emigration their doctrine was introduced and diffused in Europe. If the sectaries of the metropolis were soon mingled with the promiscuous mass, those of the country struck a deep root in a foreign soil. The Paulicians of Thrace resisted the storms of persecution, maintained a secret correspondence with their Armenian brethren, and gave aid and comfort to their preachers, who solicited, not without success, the infant faith of the Bulgarians. In the tenth century they were restored and multiplied by a more powerful colony, which John Zemiscus transported from the Chalibian hills to the valleys of Mount Hamas. The oriental clergy, who would have preferred the destruction, impatiently sighed for the absence of the Manichaeans. The warlike emperor had felt and esteemed their valor. Their attachment to the Saracens was pregnant with mischief, but on the side of the Danube against the barbarians of Scythia, their service might be useful and their loss would be desirable. Their exile in a distant land was softened by a free toleration. The Paulicians held the city of Philippopolis and the keys of Thrace. The Catholics were their subjects, the Jacobite emigrants their associates. They occupied a line of villages and castles in Macedonia and Epirus and many native Bulgarians were associated to the communion of arms and heresy. As long as they were awed by power and treated with moderation, their voluntary bands were distinguished in the armies of the empire, and the courage of these dogs, ever greedy of war, ever thirsty of human blood, is noticed with astonishment and almost with reproach by the pusillanimous Greeks. The same spirit rendered them arrogant and contumacious. They were easily provoked by caprice or injury, and their privileges were often violated by the faithless bigotry of the government and clergy. In the midst of the Norman war, 2,500 Manichaeans deserted the standard of Alexius Comnenus and retired to their native homes. He dissembled till the moment of revenge, invited the chiefs to a friendly conference, and punished the innocent and guilty by imprisonment, confiscation, and baptism. In an interval of peace, the emperor undertook the pious office of reconciling them to the church and state. His winter quarters were fixed at Philippopolis, and the thirteenth apostle, as he is styled by his pious daughter, consumed whole days and nights in theological controversy. His arguments were fortified, their obstinacy was melted, by the honors and rewards which he bestowed on the most eminent proselytes. And a new city, surrounded with gardens, enriched with immunities, 
and dignified with his own name, was founded by Alexius for the residence of his vulgar converts. The important station of Philippopolis was wrested from their hands. The contumacious leaders were secured in a dungeon, or banished from their country, and their lives were spared by the prudence, rather than the mercy, of an emperor, at whose command a poor and solitary heretic was burnt alive before the church of Santa Sophia. But the proud hope of eradicating the prejudices of a nation was speedily overturned by the invincible zeal of the Paulicians, who ceased to dissemble or refused to obey. After the departure and death of Alexius, they soon resumed their civil and religious laws. In the beginning of the thirteenth century, their pope or primate, a manifest corruption, resided on the confines of Bulgaria, Croatia, and Dalmatia, and governed by his vicars the filial congregations of Italy and France. From that era a minute scrutiny might prolong and perpetuate the chain of tradition. At the end of the last age, the sect or colony still inhabited the valleys of Mount Hamus, where their ignorance and poverty were more frequently tormented by the Greek clergy than by the Turkish government. The modern Paulicians have lost all memory of their origin, and their religion is disgraced by the worship of the cross and the practice of bloody sacrifice which some captives have imported from the wilds of Tartary. In the West, the first teachers of the Manichaean theology had been repulsed by the people or suppressed by the prince. The favor and success of the Paulicians in the 11th and 12th centuries must be imputed to the strong, though secret, discontent which armed the most pious Christians against the Church of Rome. Her avarice was oppressive, her despotism odious. Less degenerate, perhaps, than the Greeks in the worship of saints and images, her innovations were more rapid and scandalous. She had rigorously defined and imposed the doctrine of transubstantiation. The lives of the Latin clergy were more corrupt, and the Eastern bishops might pass for the successors of the apostles if they were compared with the lordly prelates who wielded by turns the crozier, the scepter, and the sword. Three different roads might introduce the Paulicians into the heart of Europe. After the conversion of Hungary, the pilgrims who visited Jerusalem might safely follow the course of the Danube. In their journey and return they passed through Philippopolis, and the sectaries, disguising their name and heresy, might accompany the French or German caravans to their respective countries. The trade and dominion of Venice pervaded the coast of the Adriatic, and the hospitable republic opened her bosom to foreigners of every climate and religion. Under the Byzantine standard, the Paulicians were often transported to the Greek provinces of Italy and Sicily. In peace and war they freely conversed with strangers and natives, and their opinions were silently propagated in Rome, Milan, and the kingdoms beyond the Alps. It was soon discovered that many thousand Catholics of every rank and of either sex had embraced the Manichaean heresy, and the flames which consumed twelve canons of Orléans was the first act and the signal of persecution. The Bulgarians, a name so innocent in its origin, so odious in its application, spread their branches over the face of Europe. United in common hatred of idolatry in Rome, 
they were connected by a form of Episcopal and Presbyterian government. Their various sects were discriminated by some fainter or darker shades of theology, but they generally agreed in the two principles, the contempt of the Old Testament and the denial of the body of Christ, either on the cross or in the Eucharist. A confession of simple worship and blameless manners is extorted from their enemies, and so high was their standard of perfection that the increasing congregations were divided into two classes of disciples, of those who practiced and of those who aspired. It was in the country of the Albigeois, in the southern provinces of France, that the Paulicians were most deeply implanted, and the same vicissitudes of martyrdom and revenge which had been displayed in the neighborhood of the Euphrates were repeated in the thirteenth century on the banks of the Rhone. The laws of the eastern emperors were revived by Frederick II. The insurgents of Tefrique were represented by the barons and cities of Languedoc. Pope Innocent III surpassed the sanguinary fame of Theodora. It was in cruelty alone that her soldiers could equal the heroes of the Crusades, and the cruelty of her priests was far excelled by the founders of the Inquisition, an office more adapted to confirm than to refute the belief of an evil principle. The visible assemblies of the Paulicians, or Albigeois, were extirpated by fire and sword, and the bleeding remnant escaped by flight, concealment, or Catholic conformity. But the invincible spirit which they had kindled still lived and breathed in the Western world. In the state, in the church, and even in the cloister, a latent succession was preserved of the disciples of St. Paul, who protested against the tyranny of Rome, embraced the Bible as the rule of faith, and purified their creed from all the visions of the Gnostic theology. The struggles of Wycliffe in England, of Hus in Bohemia, were premature and ineffectual, but the names of Zwinglius, Luther, and Calvin are pronounced with gratitude as the deliverers of nations. A philosopher who calculates the degree of their merit and the value of their reformation will prudently ask from what articles of faith above or against our reason, they have enfranchised the Christians. For such enfranchisement is doubtless a benefit so far as it may be compatible with truth and piety. After a fair discussion, we shall rather be surprised by the timidity than scandalized by the freedom of our first reformers. With the Jews they adopted the belief and defense of all the Hebrew scriptures. With all their prodigies, from the Garden of Eden to the visions of the prophet Daniel, and they were bound, like the Catholics, to justify against the Jews the abolition of a divine law. In the great mysteries of the Trinity and Incarnation, the Reformers were severely orthodox. They freely adopted the theology of the four or the six first councils, and with the Athanasian Creed they pronounced the eternal damnation of all who did not believe the Catholic faith. Transubstantiation, the invisible change of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, is a tenet that may defy the power of argument and pleasantry. But instead of consulting the evidence of their senses, of their sight, their feeling, and their taste, the first Protestants were entangled in their own scruples, and awed by the words of Jesus in the institution of the sacrament. Luther maintained their corporeal, 
and Calvin a real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and the opinion of Zwinglius that it is no more than a spiritual communion, a simple memorial, has slowly prevailed in the Reformed churches. But the loss of one mystery was amply compensated by the stupendous doctrines of original sin, redemption, faith, grace, and predestination, which have been strained from the epistles of St. Paul. These subtle questions had most assuredly been prepared by the fathers and schoolmen, but the final improvement in popular use may be attributed to the first reformers, who enforced them as the absolute and essential terms of salvation. Hitherto the weight of supernatural belief inclines against the Protestants, and many a sober Christian would rather admit that a wafer is God than that God is a cruel and capricious tyrant. Yet the services of Luther and his rivals are solid and important, and the philosopher must own his obligations to these fearless enthusiasts. 1. By their hands the lofty fabric of superstition, from the abuse of indulgences to the intercession of the Virgin, has been leveled with the ground. Myriads of both sexes of the monastic profession were restored to the liberty and labors of social life. A hierarchy of saints and angels, of imperfect and subordinate deities, were stripped of their temporal power and reduced to the enjoyment of celestial happiness. Their images and relics were banished from the church, and the credulity of the people was no longer nourished with the daily repetition of miracles and visions. The imitation of paganism was supplied by pure and spiritual worship of prayer and thanksgiving, the most worthy of man, the least unworthy of the deity. It only remains to observe whether such sublime simplicity be consistent with popular devotion, whether the vulgar, in the absence of all visible objects, will not be inflamed by enthusiasm, or insensibly subside in languor and indifference. 2. The chain of authority was broken, which restrains the bigot from thinking as he pleases, and the slave from speaking as he thinks. The popes, fathers, and councils were no longer the supreme and infallible judges of the world, and each Christian was taught to acknowledge no law but the Scriptures, no interpreter but his own conscience. This freedom, however, was the consequence rather than the design of the Reformation. The patriot reformers were ambitious of succeeding the tyrants whom they had dethroned. They imposed with equal rigor their creeds and confessions. They asserted the right of the magistrate to punish heretics with death. The pious or personal animosity of Calvin prescribed in Servetus the guilt of his own rebellion, and the flames of Smithfield, in which he was afterwards consumed, had been kindled for the Anabaptists by the zeal of Cranmer. The nature of the tiger was the same but he was gradually deprived of his teeth and fangs. A spiritual and temporal kingdom was possessed by the Roman pontiff. The Protestant doctors were subjects of an humble rank without revenue or jurisdiction. His degrees were consecrated by the antiquity of the Catholic Church. Their arguments and disputes were submitted to the people, and their appeal to private judgment was accepted beyond their wishes by curiosity and enthusiasm. Since the days of Luther and Calvin, a secret reformation has been silently working in the bosom of the Reformed churches, 
many weeds of prejudice were eradicated, and the disciples of Erasmus diffused a spirit of freedom and moderation. The liberty of conscience has been claimed as a common benefit, an inalienable right. The free governments of Holland and England introduced the practice of toleration, and the narrow allowance of the laws has been enlarged by the prudence and humanity of the times. In the exercise, the mind has understood the limits of its powers, and the words and shadows that might amuse the child can no longer satisfy his manly reason. The volumes of controversy are overspread with cobwebs. The doctrine of a Protestant church is far removed from the knowledge or belief of its private members, and the forms of orthodoxy, the articles of faith, are subscribed with a sigh or a smile by the modern clergy. Yet the friends of Christianity are alarmed at the boundless impulse of inquiry and skepticism. The predictions of the Catholics are accomplished. The web of mystery is unraveled by the Arminians, Arians, and Socinians, whose number must not be computed from their separate congregations, and the pillars of revelation are shaken by those men who preserve the name without the substance of religion, who indulge the license without the temper of philosophy. End of chapter 54, part 2